0: 16. ire were constantly revolting. As the history of Asia Minor shows, Aragon, Old Castile, and Portugal were the first kingdoms in the Iberian Peninsula to throw off Saracen Dominion. Mountain ranges and weary stretches of desert roads enabled the rebellions in Chinese Turkestan and the border districts of Slingaria in 1863 to be maintained for several years. A feeble grasp upon remote peripheral possessions is often further weakened by the resistance of an immigrant population from beyond the boundary, which brings with it new ideas of government. This was the geographical history of the Texan Revolt, a location on the far northern outskirts of Mexican territory, some 1,200 miles from the capital, rendered impossible intelligent government control, the enforcement of the laws, and prompt defense against the Indians. Remoteness weakened the political cohesion. More than this, the American ethnic boundary lapped far over eastern Texas, forming that border zone of two-fold race which we have come to know. The salient stock, antagonistic to the national ideals emanating from the city of Mexico, dominant over the native population by reason of its intelligence, energy, and wealth, ruptured the feeble political bond and asserted the independence of Texas. Quite similar was the history of the independent state of Acre, which in 1899 grew up just within the Bolivian frontier under the leadership of Brazilian couch gatherers, resisted the collection of taxes by the Bolivian government, and four years later secured annexation to Brazil, even when no alien elements are present to weaken the race bond. If natural barriers intervene to obstruct and retard communications between center and periphery, the frontier community is likely to develop the spirit of defection, especially if it's local geographic, and hence social conditions are markedly different from those of the governing centre, this is the explanation of that demand for independent statehood which was rife in our Trans-Allegheny settlements from 1785 to 1795, and of that separatist movement which advocated political alliance with either the British colonies to the north or the Spanish to the west, because these were nearer and offered easier access to the sea. A frontier location and an intervening mountain barrier were important factors in the Whiskey Rebellion in western Pennsylvania, just as similar conditions later suggested the secession of the Pacific states from the Union. Disaffection from the government was manifested by the trek of early South Africa, especially by those who dwelt in the outlying districts where the government had exerted and could exert little control. In 1795 the people of Grafri a, a frontier settlement of that time revolted against the Dutch South African Company and set up a miniature republic. The spirit of the colonial frontier is the spirit of freedom, the spirit of men who have traveled far, who are surcharged with energy, enterprise and self-reliance, often with impatience of restraint. A severe process of elimination calls out for the frontier a population strikingly differentiated from the citizens of the old inhabited centers. Then remoteness of location and abundance of opportunity proceed to emphasize the qualities which have squeezed through the sieve of natural and social selection. This is the type bred upon our own frontier, which, west beyond west, has crossed the continent from the backwoods of the Allegheny Mountains to the Pacific. The Siberian frontier develops much the same type on the eastern edge of the Russian Empire. Here army officers find a compensation for their rough surrounding in the escape from the excessive bureaucracy of the capitals. Here is to be noted the independence, self-reliance and self-respect characteristic of other colonial frontiers. The Russian of the Asiatic border is proud to call himself a Siberian, he is already differentiated in his own consciousness. The force of Moscow tradition and discipline is faint when it reaches him. It has traveled so far. Even the elaborate observances of the Orthodox Greek Church tend to become simplified on the frontier. The question naturally arises whether in the Russian Empire. As in the United States, the political periphery will in time, react upon the center, infuse it with the spirit of progress and youth. When to a border situation is added a geographic location affording conditions of long-established isolation, this tendency to maintain political autonomy becomes very pronounced. This is the explanation of so many frontier mountain states that have retained complete or partial independence, such as Nepal, Bhutan, the Asturias which successfully withstood Saracen attack, and Montenegro, which has repelled alike Venetian, Serbian, and Turkish dominion. Europe especially has numerous examples of these unabsorbed border states, whose independence represents the equilibrium of the conflicting political attractions about them. But all these smallest fragments of political territory had either some commercial or semi-political union with one or another of their neighbors, the little independent principality of Liechtenstein wedged in between switzerland and the tyrol is included in the customs union of austro-hungary the small independent duchy of luxembourg which has been attached in turn to all the great states which have grown up along its borders is included in the zollverein of germany the republic of andorra far up in a lofty valley of the pyrenees which has maintained its freedom for a thousand years acknowledges certain rights of suzerainty exercised by france and the spanish bishopric of virgil Oftentimes the state gains by recognizing this freedom-loving spirit of the frontier, and by turning it to account for national defense along an exposed boundary, in consequence of the long wars between Scotland and England, to the Scotch barons having estates near the border were given the wardenships of the marshes, offices of great power and dignity, and their clans, accustomed only to the imperfect military organization demanded by the irregular but persistent hostilities of the time and place, developed a lawless spirit prohibited from agriculture by their exposed location. They left their fields waste, and live by pillage and cattle lifting from their English and even their Scotch neighbours. The valour of these southern clans, these rivers of the border, was the bulwark of Scotland against the English, but their mutinous spirit resisted the authority of the kin and led them often to erect semi-independent principalities. China has fringed her western boundaries with quasi-independent tribes whose autonomy is assured and whose love of freedom is a guarantee of guerrilla warfare against any invader from Central Asia. The Mansa tribes in the mountain borders of Sichuan province have their own rulers and customs, and only pay tribute to China. The highlands of Kansu are sprinkled with such independent tribes. Sometimes a definite bargain is entered into a self-governing military organization and a yearly sum of money in return for defense of the frontier. The Mongol tribes of the Cherker country or, borderland, just outside the Great Wall northwest of Pekin constitute a paid army of the emperor to guard the frontier against the Khalkhas of northern Mongolia, the tribe of Genhis Khan. Similarly, semi-independent military communities for centuries made a continuous line of barriers against the raids of the steppe nomads along the southern and southeastern frontiers of Russia. From the Dnieper to the Ural rivers, there were the, Free Cossacks. Located on the debatable ground between the fortified frontier of the agricultural steppe and marauding Crimean Tartars, nominally subjects of the Tsar, they obeyed him when it sweaked them, and on provocation rose in open revolt. The Cossacks of the Dnieper, who to the middle of the 17th century formed Poland's border defense against Tartar invasion, were jealous of any interference with their freedom, they lent their services on occasions to the Sultan of Turkey, and even to the Crimean Khan, and finally in 1681 attached themselves and their territory to a russia here speaks that spirit of defection which is the natural product of the remoteness and independence of frontier life the russians also attached to themselves the Kalmuks located between the lower Volga and don and used them as a frontier defense against their tartar and Guys neighbors in this case as in that of the cossacks and the cherkers of eastern mongolia we had a large body of men living in the same arid grassland leading the same pastoral life, and carrying on the same kind of warfare as the nomadic marauders whose pillaging, cattle lifting raids they aim to suppress, the imperial orders to the Turkers limit them strictly to the life of herdmen, with the purpose of maintaining their mobility and military efficiency, so in olden times, for the Don Cossacks agriculture was prohibited on pain of death, lest they should lose their taste for the livestock booty of a punitive raid, A still earlier instance of this utilization of border nomads is found in the first century after Christ, when the Romans made the Arabian tribe of Beni Jaffra, dwelling on the frontier of Syria, the warders of the eastern marshes of the empire. The advancing frontier of an expanding people often carries them into a sparsely settled country where the unruly members of society can with advantage be utilized as colonists. After centralized and civilized Russia began to encroach with the plow upon the pastures of the steppe Cossacks, and finally, suppressed these military republics. The more turbulent and obstinate remnants of them, she colonized along the Kuban and Terek rivers to serve as bulwarks against the incursions of the Caucasus tribes and as the vanguard of the advance southward. This is one principle underlying the transportation of criminals to the frontier. They serve to hold the new country. There, these waste elements of civilization are converted into a full byproduct. They may be only political radicals or religious dissenters. If so. So much the better colonial material, the Russian government formerly transported the rebellious sect of the Molokans or Unitarians to the outskirts of the empire, where the danger of contagion was reduced, hence they are to be found today scattered in the Valda province of Samara, on the border of the Kyogai Steppe, in the Crimea, the Caucasus, and Siberia, still faithful and still persecuted. Since 1709 the Russian advance into Siberia has planted its milestones in settlements formed of prisoners of war, political exiles, and worse offenders. Penal colonists located on the shores of Kamchatka helped build and man the crazy boats which set out for Alaska at the end of the 18th century. China settles its thieves and cheats among the villages of its own border provinces of Shensi and Kansu, but its worst criminals it transports far away to the high country on the western frontier of the empire where they have doubtless contributed to the spirit of revolt that has there manifested itself, the abundance of opportunity and lack of competition in a new frontier community, its remoteness from the center of authority, and its imperfect civil government serve to attract thither the vicious, as well as the sturdy and enterprising, the society of the early trans-Allegheny frontier included both elements, the lawless who drifted to the border formed gangs of horse thieves, highwaymen, and murderers, who called forth from the others the summary methods of lynch law, North Carolina, which in its early history formed the southern frontier of Virginia, swarmed with ruffians who had fled thither to escape imprisonment or hanging, and whose general attitude was to resist all regular authority and especially to pay no taxes. Similarly, that wide belt of mountain forest which forms the waste boundary between Korea and Manchuria is the resort of bandits, who have harried both sides of the border ever since this neutral district was established in the 13th century. The frontier communities of the Russian Cossacks in the 17th and 18th centuries were regular asylums for runaway serfs and peasants who were fleeing from taxation, their headmans were repeatedly fugitive criminals. The eastern border of Russia formed by the Volga Basin in 1775 was described as an asylum for malcontents and vagabonds of all kinds, ruined nobles, disfrocked monks, military deserters, fugitive serfs, highwaymen, and all the pirates, disorderly elements which contributed greatly to the insurrection led by the Ural Cossacks in that year. The debatable land, a tract between the Esk and Sark rivers, formerly claimed by both England and Scotland, was long the haunt of thieves, outlaws and vagabonds, as indeed was the whole border, subject as it was to the regular jurisdiction of neither side, just beyond the political boundary where police authority comes to an end and where pursuit is cut short or retarded, the fleeing criminal finds his natural asylum, hence all border districts tend to harbor undesirable refugees from the other side, deserters and outlaws from China proper sprinkle the eastern districts of Mongolia, marauding bands of apaches and su, after successful depredations on American ranches. Four years fled across the line into Mexico and Canada before the hammering hoofbeats of Texas Ranger and United States Cavalry until a treaty with Mexico in 1882 authorizing such armed pursuit to cross the boundary cut off at least one asylum our country exchanges of their undesirable citizens with its northern and southern neighbors in cases where no extradition treaty provides for their return and the borders of the individual states are crossed and recrossed by shifty gentlemen seeking to dodge the arm of the law. The fact that so many state boundaries fall in the southern Appalachians, where illicit distilling and feud murders provide most of the cases on the docket, has materially retarded the suppression of these crimes by increasing the difficulty both of apprehending the offender and of subpoenaing the reluctant witness, dissatisfied, oppressed or persecuted members of a political community are prone to seek an asylum across the nearest border, where happier or freer conditions of life are promised. There they contribute to that mixture of race which characterizes every boundary zone, though as an embittered people they may also help to emphasize any existing political or religious antagonism. The revocation of the Edict of Mance in 1685 was followed by an exodus of Huguenots from France to the Protestant states of Switzerland, the Palatinate of the Rhine, and Holland. As also across the channel into southern England, just as in recent years the slaughtered borderland of eastern Germany has received a large immigration of Polish Jews from Russia. When the Polish king in 1571 executed the leader of the Dnieper Cossacks, thousands of these bold borderers left their country and joined the community of the Don, and in 1722 after the Dnieper community had been crushed by Peter the Great, a similar exodus took place across the southern boundary into the Crimea, whereby the Tartar horde was strengthened. Just as a few years before, during an unsuccessful revolt of the Don Cossacks, some 2,000 of the malcontents crossed the southern frontier to the Caban River in Circassia. The establishment of American independence in 1783 saw an exodus of Loyalists from the United States into the contiguous districts of Ontario, New Brunswick, and Spanish Florida. Five years later discontent with the federal government for its dilatory opposition to the occlusion of the Mississippi and the lure of commercial betterment sent many citizens of the early Trans-Allegheny Commonwealths to the Spanish side of the Mississippi, while the Natchez district on the east bank of the river contained a sprinkling of French who had become dissatisfied with Spanish rule in Louisiana and changed their domicile. These are some of the movements of individuals and groups which contribute to the blending of races along every frontier and make of the boundary a variable zone, as opposed to the rigid artificial line in terms of which we speak. Chapter VIII Coast Peoples of all geographical boundaries, the most important is that between land and sea, the coast, in its physical nature, is a zone of transition between these two dominant forms of the Earth's surface, it bears the mark of their contending forces, varying in its width with every stronger onslaught of the unresting sea, and with every degree of passive resistance made by granite or sandy shore so too in an anthropogeographical sense. It is a zone of transition. Now the life-supporting forces of the land are weak in it, and it becomes nearly the rim of the sea, for its inhabitants the sea means food, clothes, shelter, fuel, commerce, highway, and opportunity. Now the coast is dominated by the exuberant forces of a productive soil, so that the ocean beyond is only a turbulent waste and a long-drawn barrier, the coast is the hem of the land neither influence can wholly exclude the other in this amphibian belt, for the coast remains the intermediary between the habitable expanse of the land and the international highway of the sea, the break of the waves and the dash of the spray draw the line beyond which human dwellings cannot spread, for these the shore is the outermost limit, as for ages also in the long infancy of the races, before the invention of boat and sail, it drew the absolute boundary to human expansion, in historical order. Its first effect has been that of a barrier, and for the majority of peoples this it has remained, but with the development of navigation and the spread of human activities from the land over sea to other countries, it became the gateway both of land and sea at once the outlet for exploration, colonization, and trade, and the open door through which a continent or island receives contributions of men or races or ideas from transoceanic shores. Barrier and threshold, these are the roles which coasts have always played in history. Today we see them side by side, but in spite of the immense proportions assumed by transmarine intercourse, the fact remains that the greater part of the coasts of the earth are for their inhabitants only a barrier and not an outlet, or at best only a base for timorous ventures seaward that rarely lose sight of the shore. As intermediary belt between land and sea, the coast becomes a peculiar habitat which leaves its mark upon its people. We speak of coast strips, coastal plains, tidewater country. Coast cities, of coast tribes, coast peoples, maritime colonies, and each word brings up a picture of a land or race or settlement permeated by the influences of the sea. The old term of coastline has no application to such an intermediary belt, for it is a zone of measurable width, and this width varies with the relief of the land, the articulation of the coast according as it is uniform or complex, with the successive stages of civilization and the development of navigation among the people who inhabit it along highly articulated coasts, showing the interpenetration of sea and land in a broad band of capes and islands separated by tidal channels and inlets, or on shores deeply incised by river estuaries, or on low shelving beaches which screen brackish lagoons and salt marshes behind sand reefs and dune ramparts, and which thus form an indeterminate boundary of alternate land and water, the zone character of the coast in a physical sense becomes conspicuous, In an anthropological sense the zone character is clearly indicated by the different uses of its inner and outer edge made by man in different localities and in different periods of history. The old German maritime cities of the North Sea and the Baltic were located on rivers from 6 to 60 miles from the open sea, always on the inner edge of the coastal belt, though primarily trading towns, linked together once in the sovereign confederacy of the Hanseatic League, they fixed their sights on the last spurs of firm ground running out into the soft, yielding alluvium, which was constantly exposed to an land high enough to be above the ever-threatening flood of river and storm-driven tide on the flat coast, and solid enough to be built upon, could not be found immediately on the sea. The slight elevations of sandy, just, or detrital spurs were limited in area and in time outgrown, hence the older part of all these river towns, from Bremen to Konigsberg. Rests upon hills, while in every case the newer and lower part is built on piles or artificially raised ground on the alluvium. So Utrecht, Trajectum of the Romans, selected for its site along raised spur running out from the solid ground of older and higher land into the water-soaked alluvium of the Netherlands. It was the most important town of all this region before the arts of civilization began the conquest by and ditch of the amphibian coastal belt which now comprises one-fourth of the area and holds one-half the population of the Netherlands. So ancient London marked the solid ground at the inner edge of the tidal flats and desolate marshes which lined the Thames estuary, as the Roman Camilla Dunham and its successor Colchester on its steep rise or Dun overlooked the marshes of the Stour Inlet, farther north about the Wash which in Roman days extended far inland over an area of fens and tidal channels, Cambridge on the River Cam, Huntingdon, and Stamford on the Nun, and Lincoln on the Withamall River seaports to find the firm inner edge of this wide low coast. In the same way the landward rim of the tidal waters and salt marshes of the Humber inlet was described by a semicircle of British and Roman towns Doncaster, Castelford, Todcaster, and York, on the flat or rolling West African coastland, which lines the long shores of the Gulf of Guinea with a band 30 to 100 miles wide. The sandy, swampy tracts immediately on the sea are often left uninhabited, inhabited. Native population is distributed most frequently at the limit of deep water. And here at head of ship navigation the trading towns are found. While, on low coasts at any rate, the inner edge tends to mark the limit of settlement advancing from the interior. As the head of sea navigation on river and inlet it has also been the goal of immigrant settlers from overseas lands. The history of modern maritime colonization, especially in America, shows that the aim of regular colonists, as opposed to mere traders, has been to penetrate as far as possible into the land while retaining communication with the sea, and thereby with the mother country. The small boats in use till the introduction of steam navigation fixed this line far inland and gave the coastals zone a greater breadth than it has at present, and a more regular contour. In colonial America this inner edge coincided with the fall line of the Atlantic rivers, which was indicated by a series of seaport towns, or with the inland limit of the tides, which on the St. Lawrence fell above Quebec, and on the Hudson just below Albany, with the recent increase in the size of vessels. Two contrary effects are noticed. In the vast majority of cases, the inner edge, as marked by ports, moves seaward into deeper water, and the zone narrows. The days when almost every tobacco plantation in Tidewater Virginia had its own wharf far long since passed, and the leaf is now exported by way of Norfolk and Baltimore. Seville has lost practically all its sea trade to Cadiz, Ruan to Haver, and Dordrecht to Rotterdam. In other cases the zone preserves its original width by the creation of secondary ports on or near the outer edge, reserved only for the largest vessels, while the inner harbor, by dredging its channel, improves its communication with the sea. Thus arises the phenomenon of twin ports like Bremen and Bremerhaven, Danzig and Neuferwasser, Stettin and Swine Bordeaux and Pouillac, London and Tilbury. Or the original harbor seeks to preserve its advantage by canalizing the shallow approach by river, lagoon, or bay, as St. Petersburg by the Pandilife Canal through the shallow reaches of Kronstadt Bay, or Konigsberg by its ship canal, carried for 25 miles across the Frisches half to the Baltic, or Nantes by the Loire ship canal, which in 1892 was built to regain for the Old Town the West Indian trade recently intercepted by the rising outer port of St. Nazaire at the mouth of the Loire estuary. In northern latitudes, however, the outer ports on enclosed sea basins like the Baltic become dominant in the winter, when the inner ports are ice-bound, otherwise the outer port sinks with every improvement in the channel between the inner port and the sea. Hamburg has so constantly deepened the Elbe Passage that its outport of Cuxhofen has had little chance to arise, and serves only as an emergency harbour, while on the Weser. Maritime leadership has oscillated between Bremen and Bremerhaven, so the whole German coast and the Russian Baltic have seen a more or less irregular shifting backward and forward of maritime importance between the inner and the outer edges. The width of the coast zone is not only prevented from contracting by dredging and canaling, but it is even increased by deepening the channel. The chief port of the St. Lawrence River has been removed from Quebec 180 miles upstream to Montreal and that of the Clyde from Port Glasgow 16 miles to Glasgow itself, so that now the largest ocean steamers come to dock where 50 years ago children waded across the stream at ebb tide. Such artificial modifications, however, are rare, for they are made only where peculiarly rich resources or superior lines of communication with the hinterland justify the expenditures, but they find their logical conclusion in still farther extensions of sea navigation into the interior by means of ship canals. Where previously no waterway existed, instances are found in the Manchester Ship Canal and the Welland, which, by means of the St. Lawrence and the Great Lakes, makes Chicago accessible to ocean vessels. Though man distinguishes between sea and inland navigation in his definitions, in his practice he is bound by no formula and recognizes no fundamental difference where rivers, lakes, and canals are deep enough to admit his seagoing craft. Such deep landward protrusions of the head of marine navigation at certain favored points, as opposed to its recent coastward trend in most inlets and rivers, increase the irregularity of the inner edge of the coast zone by the marked discrepancy between its maximum and minimum width. They are limited, however, to a few highly civilized countries, and to a few points in those countries but their presence testifies to the fact that the evolution of the coast zone with the development of civilization shows the persistent importance of this inner edge. The outer edge finds its greatest significance, which is for the most part ephemeral, in the earlier stages of navigation, maritime colonization, and in some cases of original settlement. But this importance persists only on steep coasts furnishing little or no level ground for cultivation and barred from interior hunting or grazing land on many coral and volcanic islands of the Pacific Ocean whose outer rim has the most fertile soil and furnishes the most abundant growth of cocoa, palms, and whose limited area only half suffices to support the population, and in polar and subpolar districts, where harsh climatic conditions set a low limit to economic development, in all these regions the sea must provide most of the food of the inhabitants, who can therefore never lose contact with its waters, in mountainous Tierra del Fuego, whose impenetrably forest slopes rise directly from the sea, with only here and there a scanty stretch of stony beach, the natives of the southern and western coasts keep close to the shore, the straits and channels yield them all their food, and are the highways for all their restless, hungry wanderings, the steep slopes and dense forests preclude travel by land, and force the wretched inhabitants to live as much in their canoes as in their huts. The Lingat and Haida Indians of the mountainous coast of southern Alaska locate their villages on some smooth sheltered beach, with their houses in a single row facing the water, and the ever-ready canoe drawn up on shore in front, they select their sites with a view to food supply, and to protection in case of attack, on the treeless shores of Kadiac Island and of the long narrow Alaska peninsula nearby, the Eskimo choose their village location for an accumulation of driftwood, for proximity to their food supply and a landing place for their kayaks and by bidarkas, hence they prefer a point of land or gravel spin extending out into the sea, or a sand reef separating a saltwater lagoon from the open sea. The Aleutian islanders regard only accessibility to the shellfish on the beach and their pelagic hunting and fishing, and this consideration has influenced the Eskimo tribes of the wide Cuscoquin estuary to such an extent, that they place their huts only a few feet above ordinary high tide. Where they are constantly exposed to overflow from the sea. Only among the great tidal channels of the Yukon Delta are they distributed over the whole wide coastal zone. Even to its inner edge. The coast chukchis of northeastern Siberia locate their tent villages on the sand ramparts between the Arctic Ocean and the freshwater lagoons which line the slow tundra shore. Here they are conveniently situated for fishing and hunting marine animals. While protected against the summer inundations of the Arctic rivers. The whole western side of Greenland, from far northern Apernavik south to Cape Farewell, shows both Eskimo and Danish settlements almost without exception on projecting points of peninsulas or islands, where the stronger effect of the warm ocean current, as well as proximity to the food supply, serve to fix their habitations, although the remains of the Old Norse settlements in general are found in sheltered valleys with summer vegetation, striking off from the fjords some 20 miles back from the outer coast. Caesar found that the ancient Venti, an immigrant people of the southern coast of Brittany, built their towns on the points of capes and promontories, sites which gave them ready contact with the sea and protection against attacks from the land side, because every rise of the tide submerged the intervening lowlands, here a sterile plateau hinterland drove them for part of their subsistence to the water, and the continuous intertribal warfare of small primitive states to the sea girt asylums of the capes. In the early history of navigation and exploration, striking features of this outer coast edge, like headlands and capes, became important sea marks, the promontory of Mount Athos, rising 6.400 feet above the sea between the Hellespont and the Thessalian coast, and casting its shed.